Well, hey, I just, uh, I just want to share from my heart real quick, not that all of this isn't, but I just, uh, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. It's like saying this is a true story. Has everything else been a lie? I don't know. It's really cool to sit here and worship with you as a church. It has been really cool over the past two plus years to see everything that God is putting together uh, right here in our community. I know some of you have been here from the very beginning of that. I know some of you are just joining us this weekend. Um, Man, it's a beautiful thing. So as I sit here and try to figure out when this video is going to end, and I listen to uh, and pray along with Jacob as he leads us in prayer, I just look out over what God has put together. I just want you to know, man, this is something special. And uh, I'm excited I get to be a part of this. So I have a question for us today. That question is, what will we do with the time that we have left God has put us together in this moment. He's put us in this church. He's put us in this community. He's put us in this region of Arizona. What will we do in our lives with the time that we have left? There's some of us in here. We have a little bit more time than others. There are some of you who are like, man, I think I'm running on borrowed time right now. Some of us, I think we'd be surprised at how little time we actually have. I think some of us would be surprised at how much time we have left. I always told Rachel, hey, I'm going to die at 30, so let's, let's have fun before then. Uh, I'm 33, and so, man, I'm just three bonus years. Things are going pretty great. <laughs> pretty exciting. Thing is, with time, we all have 24 hours in a day. On average, the average American right now lives to be 77 years old. So what will we do with the time we have left? I think somebody just figured out they're beating the odds. <laughs> On average, as human beings, we will sleep 26 years of our lives away. Some of you aim for 40. Some of you have insomnia. You're hitting like six years right now. You're 45. You've only gotten six years of sleep. We will, on average in our lifespans, spend seven years of our lives just trying to fall asleep. Some of you are thinking, no, I spent at least 16 years just trying to fall asleep laying in bed wondering, why am I still awake? We will spend 13 years of our lives at work. We will spend one year of our lives at work not getting paid for it, unpaid over time. We will spend eight years and four months of our lives watching TV. We will spend three years of our lives scrolling through social media. We will spend four years and six months of our lives just eating. And this is not true for me. I've spent at least nine years. I'm not even halfway there. We will spend three years and one month of our lives on vacation. I don't think that's true. This must be European results. <laughs> we'll spend one year and four months of our lives exercising. Optional. <laughs> we will spend, this is, this is shocking to me, we will only spend one year and three days of our lives socializing, which means we will spend nine years of our lives on other things. Now, I just want to, even the playing field this morning, I want to just incriminate myself and let you know, maybe you're thinking here, th sitting here thinking, I have wasted so much of my life on things that didn't matter, and I just want you to know that I'm right here with you. In 2007, there was a game that came out, a um, little-known game, just played by millions and millions of people. It was called World of Warcraft. Okay, yeah, y'all know where we're going with this. Yeah, some of you are like, you're such a nerd. I wish you would get on with it. That's also true. 
World of Warcraft came out. I distanced myself from this game for a couple of years, and then I just I dove in. 30-day free pass. Six years later, got done playing that game, and uh, there was something that you could do in this game that you wanted to stay away from. There was a command that you could type in on your account to find out exactly how many seconds you had spent playing that game. You wanted to stay away from this because you didn't want to realize how much of your life you've actually wasted. And so I played this game from my junior year in high school until the early years of our marriage, which is only a couple of days after high school for the most part. And here I am, young man, married, still trying to slay dragons with my friends, still trying to level up my blood elf paladin, get the mightiest of all swords, get clout and reputation online in a digital world that didn't actually mean anything outside of in this world, outside of, you know, I got to spend some really good time with my brother. I, I typed it, forward slash played. And the result of that command being entered into that computer spit out that I had spent 33 days of my life playing that video game. Now, that wasn't like 33 days straight, but that is 33 days I will not get back. I just did a little Googling because I didn't want to feel ultra convicted. I kind of wanted to justify all of this this morning, okay? Uh, the problem with all this is I was considered a, an ultra casual player, like somebody that you would uh, let be on your team because you felt bad for me. Uh, there was someone, the highest slash played time on any account, time in game, sitting in a chair at their keyboard, forward slash played time, 1,800, not hours, days. Five full years of a person's life spent inside this game. Now, they still have four years left in their life that they could spend on anything else, so maybe they can keep playing. My question, knowing the amount of time that I have wasted in my life, is what will I do with the time that I have left? The, the question that I want to ask you this morning is, what will you do with the time that you have left? Will you waste it? Certainly, I have wasted a lot of time. Will you spend it or Will you invest it and invest it in kingdom things? We see today in our scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, that Peter lays out exactly what we should do with the time that we have left. So let's dive into the scripture this morning. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Only point this morning, there's six, maybe seven subpoints, but only point this morning, live for God's will. Live 
for God's will. We see this broken down into three different line items that Peter gives us this morning. And the first is preparation and what mentality we should have in approaching the rest of our time here on this earth. He gives us action steps, two action steps, what to do, what not to do. And then he tells us what will happen when people react to our actions and how they will respond. So the very first scripture we look at, verse 1 in chapter 4, Peter talks about preparation. We are to have some resolve. We are to stand firm. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Church family, have some resolve. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a member of this church, have some resolve. Arm yourself with the mentality of Jesus. Make yourself dangerous for the kingdom of God. Make yourself dangerous against the kingdom of darkness and the enemy that opposes us. My desire for every single one of you that calls this your church home is that you would be dangerous followers of Jesus, that every morning you roll out of bed, that the devil would be nervous because there is that Christian and they are awake and they are here to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. How do we arm ourselves? How do we apply this militaristic concept, arming ourselves? The same way of thinking, the mentality of Jesus. We embrace suffering just as Jesus embraced suffering. You can see at a certain point in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is preparing himself for the end. He did not run away from Jerusalem. He did not turn his face away from Jerusalem. He turned his face toward Jerusalem, knowing exactly what Jerusalem meant, knowing exactly that the cross would be there waiting for him. We go back to the triumphal entry where we were just a few weeks ago, Luke 19, 41. This is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, palm leaves in the streets, coats in the street, And this isn't in the account that we covered in John, but in Luke, it gives us a little bonus item. Luke 19, verse 41, And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept for the state of the city. He wept for the state of the hearts of Israel. And he wept because he knew the pain, the suffering, the trials, and the persecution that were ahead. Jesus has counted the cost. Jesus has said, yes, this is going to hurt. But man, is this going to be worth it? Yes, this is going to take every ounce of my life. My blood is going to be spilt. My body will be laid open. But man, is this going to be worth it? There will be things in your life that you need to count the cost for. You need to embrace the suffering, the trials, and the persecution that are ahead of you. And with the same mentality of Jesus, our Savior that we follow, we dig deep down inside of ourselves, realizing it's not in our strength, but the strength of the Spirit that was made available to us through the work of Jesus. And then we say to ourselves, yeah, this is going to be tough. But man, is this going to be worth it? 
When I look around this room this morning, I see faces that has been tough and there's been suffering in my life. Times have been hard. Planting a church is hard. Doing this every Sunday is hard. The relationships are the hardest aspect of the whole thing. When you're a shepherd, you surround yourself with sheep, and a lot of times sheep bite. You guys bite hard. But man, is it worth it. I look at what God's done in your lives. When I look at what God is doing in your lives, and when I look into the future and see, it's going to hurt a lot more. But Jesus, I'll keep hurting. I'll keep hurting if it means that you grow this church. Not numerically. Forget all that. Let's lay that down. But in depth and in a heart for Jesus. Spiritual strength. Making true disciples, true followers of Jesus. Yes, this is going to hurt. But man, is it going to be worth it? Yes, this has hurt, but man, you're worth it. I'll say that to the end. Just stop biting so much. <laughs> we got to remind ourselves of why we suffer. We suffer just as Jesus suffered. We suffer to be able to identify with Jesus. We suffer to make us more like Jesus. We suffer because it purifies and strengthens our faith. When the temperature is turned up, our faith becomes pure, it becomes more valuable, and becomes stronger. So we're not just to be people of resolve. We're called to stand firm. And there's one thing about suffering that wakes us up. Suffering puts an end to sin in our life. Suffering raises the stakes in our life. Suffering makes everything else in our lives count so much more that it really puts sin into perspective. When we live inside of God's will, as pain goes up, our reliance on God goes up. As we live inside of God's will, as pain goes up, preferential sin goes up down. Suffering puts everything into perspective. If I am hurting for the sake of Jesus, if I am living within God's will, then that sin in my life that I think I am addicted to, it turns out I'm actually not addicted to it because I'm more concerned about God and the things of his kingdom instead of this sin that I once thought I was addicted to. It turns out I wasn't addicted to that sin. It just turns out I preferred that sin over God and the things of the kingdom. When we suffer, it brings all of that into perspective. Now, this does not mean that you will be perfect in this life. We continue to follow Jesus, but sometimes we will fall flat on our faces. But this does mean that we will continue to die to <laughs> sin until we die. We will not be perfected until we go to be with God the Father. We will continue to struggle, but we will continue to be forgiven. And as we are forgiven, we will continue to work out our salvation. So as we put an end to sin in our lives, as we become people of resolve, people that stand firm, we get to verse 2. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, this is to live in the flesh as in these human bodies, not for sin. For the rest of the time we live in these human bodies, we do not live for human passions, but for the will of God. And so, verse 2, we are to replace sin in our lives with kingdom wins in our lives. This is the first action that Peter gives to us. Prepare to live for the kingdom the rest of my life after Jesus is going to be spent serving Jesus. We are called to live for God's will. We are called to fight spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, to give God our yes anytime he calls. But God's will is incredibly complex. And I'm not just going to say, let's live for God's will and think that if you just came into a relationship with Jesus or if you have yet to come into a relationship with Jesus, that you're going to understand what that looks like. And so I don't, we don't have six weeks to dive into this this morning, but we can briefly describe what God's will is. And I need you to know this morning that God's will is full spectrum. God's will is both general in our lives. There are a lot of things he will permit us to do and in grace cover. God's will is specific in our lives. God's will is what he calls us to do in our lives, not what we want to do that we're just going to ask him permission about after we've already gone and done it. God's will is where this great passion that he is designed and instilled and built within our hearts intersects with the world's great need. But at the same time, God's will is doing the next right thing in your life. God's will in our lives is something that he wants us to be a part of. God wants cooperation with us in his bigger story. He has written you into his bigger story. When we give our lives to Jesus, we don't invite Jesus to be a part of our lives because our lives and our stories are much too small for Jesus. No, what happens is he invites us into his bigger story. So we jump out of our book and we jump into his book and we say, okay, how can I make things happen here in your plan, in your way, in your world, God? Not about what I want to see done, but what you want done. Not my will, but yours. But here's the thing. God doesn't rely on us for his will to happen. But God's will is also not a tightrope that we need to walk legalistically, hoping that we are on the right track. No, God is loving. He is forgiving. He is full of grace and he is full of mercy. And when we step off the path, he is always quick and kind enough and full of grace and mercy enough to course correct and say, hey, this is where we were. And everything that you did over there, don't worry. I can use those things, and I will use those things. And other people will come to me and worship me because of how I've used your life as an example and how I've used the mistakes that you've made. God's will is full of grace. Verse 3, we see that we are to leave our past in the past. The second action that Peter gives us this morning. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What Peter's saying is, hey, you have enough sin under your belt. 
you don't have to keep sinning. You've got a PhD in sinning. You don't have to keep working on that degree. It's not just continued graduate school in the way of the Gentile, in the way of these pagans and these things that they practice. No, you have enough sin behind you. When Jesus died on the cross for our sin, he conquered it. He had victory over it. As we live under Jesus' rule, reign, and authority, that means that sin in our lives has also been conquered. We have been set free. We have been loosed from the chains of bondage that is sin in our lives. That means that we need to die to sin, not manage our sin. There's a verse in Revelations that says the people return to their sin like a dog returns to his vomit. Every time we fall back into habitual sin, we are returning to our sin like a dog returns to its vomit. And we're lopping it up as if it is a feast when it is disgusting. And it's been cleaned up. It's been died for. And there's been victory over it. So don't continue sinning. No more sensuality, no more passions, no more drunkenness, no more orgies, no more drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Peter could have gone on and on and on and on and on. And certainly, if we were to take the lens and put it on our lives, we could come up with a much more extensive, much more exhaustive list than any of these things, just based off of the things that we have done in our lives. I know a lot of you, and I know myself, we, we got pretty good at sinning at one point in our lives. But now here we are, set free, made clean, reclaimed, restored, and repurposed for the kingdom. Here's the thing about sin. Here's the thing about everything that Peter lists in this non-exhaustive list. Every single one of those things are actions of escape. Every single one of the sins in this list is to get away from something and not run to something. As believers, as Jesus followers, we are not running away from life anymore. We are not running away from the things that once happened to us, the trauma in our past. We have given that over to Jesus. We have said, use this, work in this, whatever you have to do, heal this. And he has restored that. So we're not running away from life anymore, running away from the things that used to be or things that happened to us. Now we are running to God and we are running to others. Now, why is that? Why is it that we need to leave the past in the past? There's a Tim Keller quote. I wasn't able to find it, but I do know he was the one that said it. Don't think that I am this smart and was able to put this together. But we tend to sin when we feel owed something. You can boil sin down to its very essence, and sin will always occur when we feel like we are owed something, whether it's against someone else, whether we feel slighted by someone else, or we're just owed something in our lives, or something that we can get away with because we've earned, because we've done X amount of good things, now we can do a bad thing. In our flesh, in our sinfulness, we tend to sin when we feel owed something. Now, when sin lives alongside suffering, then we have a problem. If we don't leave sin in the past, now we have a problem because if we are going through trials, if we are suffering, if we are being maligned, socially distanced by other people because of these things that we believe now, if we are being persecuted, 
now we're going to constantly feel like we are owed something. And so if we are not living in God's will, living for God's kingdom, making ourselves fully submitted to him, if we are just have this little affair with sin on the side, we're just, we're kind of managing it. We're just, we're kind of dabbling in it, but it's, it's not really fully in control. Now you add suffering into the mix. Now you feel slighted all the time. Now you feel because of X, Y, Z trial, X, Y, Z circumstance that aren't going your way, now you feel like you're owed something and now sin is growing rampantly in your life. Leave your past in the past. The Backstreet Boys were great theologians. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. Let's take that. Let's apply it. Verse 4. This is the reaction. You will be misunderstood. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they maligned you. Why don't they do that anymore? Why don't they come around anymore? Why are they so different from who they used to be? You will be misunderstood. And when you are misunderstood, you will be maligned. Man, they're, they're not the same person they used to be. They just think they're better than us now. Man, they, they're not hanging out with us anymore. They, they, care, they care about their new friends. They care about their new church friends, their new church family. They're, they don't care about us anymore. They're, they're just holier than thou. What happened to that person? Let me tell you what happened. What happened was Jesus entered into your life. And Jesus enters into your life when you are taken as broken and dirty and you are put back together, you are made new, you are restored, and then you are repurposed. Here's what happens. You begin to live holy. And as you begin to live holy, if this is where you once were, here's the spectrum. Here's your sinful friends. If you were right here with them, Jesus has restored you. This has put you at least a little bit over neutral. You're now in the light here. And you start to live holy. The more you live for Jesus, the more you dive into God's word, the more you spend time praying to him, the more you just experience Jesus in your life, the more distance is going to put between who you used to be and who you are now. And so now the more that you live for Jesus, the more ammunition that they have against you to malign you, to misunderstand you, to attack you, to persecute you. And so the more Jesus, the more distance between. But there is a solution. We get that in our second reaction here in verse 5 through 6, where we are called to rely on the gospel in judgment. As holiness and holy living push us away from who we used to be and the people we used to be around, it's not supposed to stay holy versus unholy, clean versus unclean, sheep versus goats. That's not the way Jesus intended it. That might be an Old Testament concept, but that is not the way now in Jesus. That is not the way in the new covenant. And Jesus has called us to live in a way that relies on the gospel. Verse 5 and 6, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for everyone. And those people that malign you, those people that persecute you, these people that are putting you through trials, 
depending on where you're at, this might be good news. Hey, judgment's coming for those people. But also it's a reminder. It's a reminder now in the new covenant and the new relationship that we have in Jesus that it doesn't end with them being bad, us being good. They're on the wrong team. We're on the the right team. Judgment is coming. When judgment comes, we will be covered by the blood of Jesus. When judgment comes, they will have an opportunity to be covered by the blood of Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, because of the good news of Jesus. Now it's not us versus them. It's not good versus, it's not good versus bad. I've got to remember where I'm at here, okay? Good side, bad side. I'm not talking about the congregation, all right? Because of Jesus, we go from holy living to now living amongst people that are not holy living. Yes, they may persecute us. They may put us through trials. They may malign us. There might be suffering in our lives because of these people, but judgment is coming. You were once on this side. You were once unclean. You were once broken. You were once dirty. What changed that? The good news of Jesus, the gospel. Well, now you're over here. Now you're clean, put back together, Sure, you may chip some edges off every now and then. Jesus puts those back on for you as you go down the road. You're not supposed to stay here and keep the best kept secret to yourself. You're supposed to take the good news of Jesus that took you from over there to here, and you're supposed to go back over here and span the distance between sinfulness and holiness. You are supposed to give hope to the hopeless. You're supposed to take light into the darkness supposed to share the good news of Jesus. Yes, you may be broken. Yes, you may be unclean. Yes, you may feel like there's nothing that you can do in your life to put things back together. But guess what? The good news is it was never on you. The good news is that Jesus gave his life so that you could be clean. The good news is that Jesus gave his life so that you could be put back together. The good news is that you never had any business standing in the presence of a perfect God. But the only one who could ever be perfect Fully God, fully man, gave his life for you so that you could. So don't stand over here as Ned Flanders and the Simpsons saying, Homer's sinful. Go over here. Say, hey, you may be sinful, but I have the best news in the world for you. You may have persecuted me. You may have slandered me, said some bad things about me. You may have made my life miserable. But let me give you the greatest news on earth, and that's that Jesus came and he died for you to put you in right relationship with the Father. And if you put your faith in him and you rely on the grace of God for nothing, something that you can never earn yourself, that you will be saved. Well, now all of a sudden, there's a bridge from unclean, broken, messy, to holy living in Jesus. Bridge the gap. Rely on the gospel and judgment. Time has stolen so many things from me. It's not done. Time has stolen so many things from you. It's not done. So what will we do with the time that we have left? God has put us together as this church in this community, and the jobs that we're in, and the families that we have for a reason, for such a time as this. 
How will we live out the rest of our lives in Jesus within the will of God in the time that we have remaining? How do we be the church? How are we to display the kingdom today? How are we to take these six verses and apply it to our lives as we leave this building? We're to die to sin. We're to live for God. And as others push away, we pursue them with the gospel. Let's pray.